would wake you up. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have such a soothing voice. I was going to get the phone book and read it. It is just as comforting as all. You know, I've got this Wisconsin nasally twang. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. You, it's beautiful. That's what my teacher tells us several times. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Um, good morning, everybody. I uh, Permit me just a bit of self-indulgence. I didn't know this, but... Gail and Dean, hi. Where's where's the camera? Right. Hi. Oh, hi. I've had the privilege of spending a little bit of time uh, with uh, with Gail and Dean, and um, you are an incredible example of what love looks like. And we love you. And uh, it was great to hear your voice this morning. So, um, I am humbled uh, whenever I get a chance. Uh, to teach, to, to be in front of people. Um, I have tremendous respect for Wayne. Um, Wayne is a good man, and, and he's got this big theological brain. <laughs> I'm not a theologian, but I can promise you this. I love this book. I love everything about it. And if I get a chance to be able to share what's been put in my heart with you, I, I pray I want to honor your time, you as people, and, and Wayne, and there's one other I didn't get a chance. I get a little bit perclept every time, but I want to honor one of the favorite people that I have, that I know, and that's Taylor. I want to honor you. I thought I've learned more from you, so I want to honor you in, in this teaching. I'm grateful for you. Very, very grateful for you. So I'm going to tell a story, right? <laughs> um, there's a, uh, two communities held together by a stream called Upstream, and downstream, and idyllic communities, just perfect. One day, the people of downstream started to find some bodies in their part of the stream, and some of them were already drowned, some were, were struggling, some were, were trying to figure out how to get to shore and swim and helping each other, and there was a serious crisis downstream. And so, the downstream people being good people, they developed all kinds of systems and programs and treatments and therapies and they built buildings to take care of those that are sick. They just did everything that they knew how to do and it was absolutely glorious. And so they were celebrating um, one summer and, and you can get the picture. The buildings had uplights on them. There were, there were fireworks going off in the distance and along the stream there was a grandfather walking with her little granddaughter. And the little granddaughter looked up at her grandpa and said, you don't look happy, grandpa. You, you're one of the leaders in this town. It, why aren't you happy? And the grandfather goes, I keep asking one question. I can't get an answer to it. And the granddaughter goes, well, what's the question? He goes, how did the bodies get in the river in the first place? See, upstream, the bridge was out, and people were walking across and falling in. I, um, we do a lot of things right, but the bridge is out for a lot of people. And what I want to share with you today, we, we forget the bridge being the word of God, Jesus. Um, all the counseling, all of the pastoring that I've ever done, if it's, if it's, if it's good psychology but bad theology, then it's bad psychology. My psychology has to map on top of my theology. And we've developed that are all good things. 
classes and teaching and everything. But what I want to be able to do this morning is, is share with you um, something that I pray um, connects with you a little bit. And it's through, ironically, it's, it's through the book of Philippians. Um, and and uh, Stephen Covey, a business guru in the 80s and 90s, had a saying, begin with the end in mind. So my end is to leave you with some hope in dealing with two of the most frequent things that I as a pastor and that I as a man of God wrestle with. In fact, I think it is so significant. It's an epidemic. I, I think it's more invasive. I think it's more toxic. I think it's more deadly than COVID ever was. And it's, and it's two things. It's anger and anxiety. Anger and worry. And the way we were going to get there, ironically enough, is through an epistle that has as its subtext joy, Philippians. It's, it's one of the four Pauline prison epistles to connect something that, that sort of the bridges out, Revelations 2 reads like this, the first, first verses. Um, uh, this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I had this one complaint against you. Here's the leveling statement. You don't love me or love each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. Love me and love each other. And I think Paul, as you'll see, as, as I kind of walk you through the first three chapters, and, and we're going to end with the, the last, excuse me, the first nine verses in chapter four, where he talks about anger and anxiety. But I, I want to, in a brief time, uh, sort of take it in a survey fashion and lead us through the context of these first three chapters and then, like I said, spend a little bit of time on, on the first nine verses of chapter four. And, and it's important to note, I think, and that remember um, that this is some of the most familiar, off-quoted scripture that we hear. Don't worry, press forward. So I recognize I'm gonna do injustice, but, but I wanna get us through because it's important because the first three chapters, I think, set up this incredibly important message that we've done a lot of thing, good things with, but upstream, the Word of God has given it to us. And it's about, um, what is that C.S. Lewis quote? Uh, Christians don't need to know more. We need to remember better. How about that? We, we don't need to know more. It's just like that guy. Go figure to write a, a good story, right? Or write a good phrase. So, um, uh, the book, it's dense with truth and encouragement and joy, all rolled into some incredible practical wisdom. Um, but I want to leave you with, um, with some tangible um, 
I don't want to say it's a vaccine, but I want to leave you with truth from Scripture on how to deal with these two things. So a brief setup. The author is Paul of Philippians, who's writing with Timothy. It was written around uh, AD 62 when Paul was under house arrest, and he was waiting to see if Caesar was going to have him killed. So it's different arrest than what we read about in Acts 16. Um, I'm sure it wasn't a day at the beach. It wasn't fun. But he wasn't in stocks. He wasn't being tortured. He wasn't being beaten. Um, he, had, he had been able to, to, to get tools to write. Um, so he, he was still in prison, not knowing if he was going to be killed or not. But it wasn't the type of prison that he... Um, walk through it in Acts. And, and this is an important, again, piece as Paul develops this. In this book, in this epistle, in this letter, um, uh, Paul addresses oftentimes deep theological doctrinal truths. He talks to the church and says, you know better. This is how it is. Um, this is his only letter that doesn't have any Old Testament references in it. Every other epistle he writes will reference an Old Testament truth that the people would know. This one he doesn't. So it's led, um, commentators, smart people, that the original audience was mostly comprised of Gentile new Christians and a few of, uh, Jewish believers. And it was a small band. And it's important also to know a little bit about where Philippi was. Uh, Paul and Silas planted the church in 49 AD. So it's 10, 15 years old. Philippi was a center of commerce, the Ignatian Way, a very um, a popular commercial thoroughfare, went, went right through uh, Philippi. Um, it was populated by Romans and Egyptians and Jews. There were at least 35 little G gods that were worshipped in that, in that center of commerce. It was a very worldly culture, and this little band, this little church, was smack dab in the midst of this culture, of this worldly driven, of this anything but this person of Christ type of worship. And, and I think that's important to know because what, what Paul was doing in this letter, if you envision it, he's talking to this little band and he's reminding them of the joys of Christ. You hear the word rejoice, rejoice. So he's giving this phenomenal talk of encouragement in the midst of a, a money-driven culture. And Paul knows it's going to get hard for this little band. And he's not sure if he's going to get out of house arrest, if he's just going to have him killed or not. And he's writing them. And he's saying, remember who you are. Remember who Jesus is. Stand firm no matter what the circumstances, but do it with joy. Sounds familiar. Sometimes I feel that's where we are right now. That we as this believing body, and it's going to set up in chapter 2 and begin to flow, and I pray it makes sense. But, but picture Paul, and he's got this brilliant understanding of who you and I are. He, he begins... In chapter 1 now, and I'm going to move kind of through, he, he starts with the relationship. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, 
see, I, I think sometimes he uses this, this brilliant strategy because sometimes we can have truth and we can read it and we can consider it as knowledge. We can read scripture almost sometimes as a historical text and it's all true and it's all right. But Paul, in the compassion of who he is, picture it, he's looking at him through this letter and he's saying, um, I want to make a connection. Think about it this way. Um, our senior pastor has a great gift. You and I can read our scripture at home. Amen. It's good. It's right. It's necessary. But if you're like me, when we sit and listen to Wayne or when we listen to someone like Pastor Chuck, he makes it personal, doesn't it? He, he's like he's just talking to you. And he, he's connecting with you. And he has this beautiful way of doing that. That's what Paul is doing. Because he knows that that relationship is important for, for what's coming on. So he wants, he's drawing this audience in. He's kind of come around. I, I want to tell you a few things. Remember, he knows it's going to get hard. So he sets this relationship and then he prays. And it's a, it's a deep contemplative prayer. Um, verse 9 says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, that you'll keep growing in knowledge and understanding, for I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live a pure and blameless life. It's not a rote prayer. Again, try and picture that, that Paul, through this letter, and they know who Paul is. They know what he's been through. But he's personalizing it because he wants their attention because he loves them so much. He say, I'm going to give you something here that you need to be able to go forward, to move on. And then um, uh, verse 12 through 20 in, in the first chapter, again, I said he's a, a brilliant student of human behavior. Because what he does in verse 12 through 20, he, he talks about him. He talks about and I want you to know, my dear brothers, that everything that happened to me here is for the spread of the gospel. He makes it really personal. Again, if you're telling about something that is distant, we go, yep, that's true. But, but he's, he's there in this letter. He's saying, you know me. Okay? This is really good truth. And it's something I'm going to use my... It's not a narcissistic elevation. Paul always, 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 always points to the cross. But he's using himself and what he's gone through as a way to, okay, I, I, I understand. I got you. Powerful, powerful tool. Our pastor does that phenomenally, has done it for a, a sermon or two. <laughs> so Paul uses his circumstances to remind them to be joyful, to encourage them. For he knows what's coming and hard times are coming. So that his get off the stage line, if you will, in, in chapter 1, is look at verse 27 and 28. And, and 27 and 27, it, it, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ, reminding them, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together, standing together, Remember Revelations 2, with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together 
for the faith, which is the good news. And then in 28, it says, don't be intimidated anyway by your enemies. Paul knows, look, there's enemies out there. There's enemies of what you are going to um, uh, live into and live forward and communicate. So Paul, here he begins ramping up. I know there's enemies out there. But again, we hear this thing called together. So he sends the message. And that message, I think, becomes real and sets it up in, in the second chapter of this book. And it's important. Paul, he's got their attention. And in my, um, my Bible, it has, as the superscript above the, the chapter title says, have the attitude, some have the mind of Christ. And I think there's two themes in the second chapter that he develops that are probably worthy, not probably, they are most certainly worthy of an entire handful of lectures to talk. But I think what he's telling them, what he's telling us, is that no matter what is going on in the world, in your country, in your church, in your family, perhaps even in yourself, these are the two things by what Christ had with his relationship with his Father and his Spirit, that Paul had with the relationship with Christ, and that he's hoping that we have with Christ. See, in verse 1 of the second chapter, we hear this appeal. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? I'm reading the New Living Translation. Is there any comfort from, um, whoop, my little thing, yeah. Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Your hearts are tender and compassionate. They make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. What he is developing there is the concept of unity. To go forward, there is a, a necessity to be unified. And, and what we're unified in is Christ. So Paul is thinking, okay, I love these people. I, I, gotta, I gotta help them. It's gonna get tough. There are enemies out there. What, what, can, what can I share with them? What can I impress upon them? And that is to be unified, to stay together. And I would dare say that culturally, we're finding a lot of division within families, within churches, within our country, within our world. And so he's talking to us believers. He's saying, stay unified, guys. Stay unified. Stick together. And then in verses 5 through 11, again, I'm flying through this. I apologize, but it, it will set up. He, he gives the other key. So he's basically saying, to get by, you've got to stay unified. And the second thing that he's saying you've got to have, and he does it through what's called oftentimes the great kenosis chapter, the great kenosis section. And, and he, he talks through how, how Christ emptied himself. He trusted his father. He stayed the course, and that's how he had jo joy. He did not think, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to the cross. He stayed with it. 
And therefore, out of that, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him a name above all other names, the name of Jesus. And every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under heaven, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul is saying in that chapter, he's saying stay together and keep humble. Keep humble. We're going to see how those two themes of unity and humility are directly related to the two toxic realities in our world today, anger and worry. So Paul used the technique, again, of making it so close. He used himself as an example. And, and then finally, this, this interesting last part of, of, of chapter 2, he ends with the, the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And, and we don't have time to do a character study but there are two different types of people. I think Paul, not I think, I know Paul used that intentionally. Timothy is that unselfish, wise adult. Some wisdom. Epaphroditus is it all in and risk it all for Christ. Verses 26, uh, 20 and 22 in the second chapter talks about uh, Timothy, someone who genuinely cares like a son with his father, he has served me in preaching good news. He's a wise man. I have confidence. I have confidence in him. And then Epaphrodites, um, verse 30, for he risked his life for the work of Christ. So he's setting this up. Stay together. Keep humble. Have some good people around you, one who's really wise and one who's going to challenge you. Come on, let's go do this. Because we'll see in verse 3 that what he's pointing to is to move forward, to go forward. So you need someone wise. You need someone who's, who's willing to motivate you. Do you have that? Do I have that? This is God's word, surely not mine. So Paul is doing this brilliant, brilliant setup in verse 2. Are you, do you feel unified? Are you humble? Do you, are, are you a good example? And then he comes to chapter 3. And it's a spectacular chapter. People are out to get you. I want to help you retain the joy of being a Christ follower, is what he's saying. So out of chapter 2, be unified in the midst of diversity. Remember where they are. Remember the circumstance of where they're in. And humility in the midst of cultural norms that aren't any different than today. It's the elevation of self. How can I be bigger, more important, more money? How can I do that? So it's no different, is it? This, this word is timeless. That's uh, Overly simplistic, but absolutely accurate way of saying it. And he's saying, okay, make sure that, that Christ retains your foundation. And we often look at chapter 3 as it breaking out into four distinct sections, a warning, a testimony, a goal, and then a, a subtle command. So I, I love the way that chapter 3 begins. That's why I think it's spectacular. He, he starts with this hyperbolic 
treatise of a people, Judaizers, right? They, they were Jews, but they were trying to sort of go, um, you can have your Christ, but you also got to do some of these Jewish things too, like circumcision is what they're talking about predominantly. So Paul, this book of joy, this, this true man of God, unleashes some of the most hyperbolic, uh, over-exaggerated language that mixes no bones. He says in verse 3, watch out for those dogs. <clears throat> those dogs. And, and remember, that, and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's writing. It's an ironic twist because what did the Jews call Gentiles? Dogs. They called them dogs. So Paul's like, yeah, watch out for those dogs. Then he goes in, watch out for those people who do evil. Those Judaizers thought that they were spiritually giants. Paul goes, they're doing evil. Watch out for those people that are doing evil. They, the Judaizers, thought they were this spirit, holding the spiritual mantle. And then, <laughs> mutilators. He called them mutilators. They thought the circumcision was a sanctifying. Paul goes, you're mutilating. So Paul just called them dogs, evil mutilators. Okay, Paul, got my attention. I, they got the relationship. They understand who Paul is, understand who Paul was. And see, when Paul was on his Damascus Road experience, the, the beautiful thing, he didn't have some earthly superpowers he was a man of God who all power came from. He, he didn't get plucked out on his conversion. He got put in. And, and, and so he uses himself through chapter 3 of telling his journey. Again, brilliant as a way to connect. I can hear a story, but if, if Pastor Swindoll came and said, one of the most effective things, some of you are around or not, he and Cynthia came 15 years ago, 10 years, and they, they talked about their marriage for our marriage um, ministry. People were glued. It's like, wow, Chuck's talking. I can stand up and rattle the whole thing all day long. They didn't listen to a word I said. <laughs> but they respected. They knew Chuck, and they go, okay, that guy. Yeah, he's, he's I want to listen to him. That's Paul. That's what was going on there, and Paul knows it. And he's using himself not as a, a, an example of having it perfect. In fact, he says that the exact opposite. He uses it so people cannot drift off. So they stay locked on and go, okay, I, I want to hear what he says. And, and he basically, um, I'm going to go through these quick again, uh, verses, uh, let's call it 12 through 16. He, he gives us five Ways and it's going to end with chapter 4 here. I promise I'll get there. <laughs> but he, he gives us five ways. So he's talking to them. He's got their attention. He says in verse 12, um, and just a side note, um, I love how Paul continues to remind us. It's comforting to me that our society probably isn't any different <laughs> than what it was back then. This is still not our home. 
I don't think no matter how much we try and make heaven on earth, heaven's heaven and this ain't heaven. No matter how much technology, no matter how much enlightenment, no even how much compassion, all good and right things, but this isn't our home. So Paul is saying, okay, here's how you guys are going to get through this. Remember, he knows. He's telling me he got enemies. He's not sure if he's going to live or die. So he's telling them, here's how you do it. Uses himself an example. He talks about it is progress, not perfection. In verse 12, it's progress. It's not perfection. Um. Verse 13, move there. The past is over. Verse 13. This is, grab the wrong readers, go figure. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And then it goes into four. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. The past is over. The Greek word for past, or excuse me, behind there, is a, again, Wayne would know how to say it, epithel, I tried to ask Roy to tell me and I couldn't get a hold of him. Epithelionamoi. That worked. Sorry. It's a big word and it means in Greek, but it doesn't mean just leave behind or put out of mind. He's saying, because it, 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 it's irresponsible to just not remember we learned lessons from the past. And, and again, even forward, it, it, it's, it's not wrong to think forward, but it's how we hold it and how we hold it in tension. And here Paul is saying, um, he's referencing, and he used himself above that. He used himself an example. And what he's saying, and he said, he is, what? Well, we, we go through that, right? Um, uh, uh, he persecuted the church. He was righteous. He obeyed the law without faith. He was circumcised when he was eight in verses five and pure-blooded. He went through his bona fides. This guy's a real deal. And then he comes into, I once thought these things were valid, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything, and everything means everything else is worthless. When compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have disregarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Some of you who are Greek students, you know the Greek word is scubula. And you know what scubula means? Dung. I mean, it wasn't just rubbish. It wasn't just um, not valuable. Again, he's on his hyperbolic kick. He's going, it's useless. It's rubbish. It is manure. It doesn't mean anything, and I was this. Keep moving forward. Jesus washed us. Why do, we, why do we hold on so tightly sometimes to past hurts? Some even hold on to past successes. I was an outstanding high school baseball player. Still think I should be in the major leagues, but... <clears throat> Got a feeling that that is out right now, okay? Got a feeling I'm not there. The point, the point is, 
leave it behind. It's rubbish. All of those worldly successes, all of those hurts. Focus on Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second, but we all know that. That when we are angry, we are living in the past, trying to make something right. Chuck has that beautiful saying, being angry is like drinking rat poison and hoping the other person should die. How great is that? <laughs> How great is that saying? Being angry is like drinking rat poison and hoping the other person should die. Only Pastor Chuck can say it, and he said it well that way. We hold on to that, and it causes great pain. Jesus washed us. Just to kind of walk through this a little bit more. The future holds out hope. Pressing on, uh, he, Paul uses a lot of athletic imagery, and, and, and he's referencing there more to a marathon than a, strength, than, than a, than a sprint. And, and here, some of you may have run marathons before, but, but if you've been in one or seen one, sprints are all tight together. What I love about this name, many ways I love this name, marathon. Marathon, you see the participants all strung out. There's some that are behind, some that are way in front. And Paul is saying, it's a marathon. So, so take care of those who aren't where you are. P perhaps they aren't there. Then, then draw them in. Don't judge them. Don't push them away. And if you're out in front, help. Encourage. You may have finished the race or you may have done. Encourage those that are lagging behind a marathon. They're all spread out. We're not all in one place. So Paul is saying, Guys, as you go forward, there's going to be people who are going to get it more than you, but love them, take care of them, stay together, be unified. Um, verse 15, a secret, uh, the, the secret is a determined attitude, and then he talks about to keep a high standard together. Um, so, so Paul, just to briefly goes through, he says, this is how you're going to get through it. Stay unified, stay humble. Remember, progress, not perfection. The past is over. Leave it behind. The future holds out hope, so press on. Reach for it. The attitude. I could spend an hour talking about our attitude. The game of life is played between the ears. Secular psychology says the way we behave is this. We think, we feel, and we do. Our thoughts inform our feelings and our actions uh, and our feelings inform our actions. That is why, remember, if bad psychology, if it's not on top of theology, that's why scripture constantly talks about, think on these things that are good and right. By their noon of your mind, meditate on my word. It's constantly saying, put my brain, put my truth in your brain, because I know how you work. And you're going to feel what you're thinking, and if your thinking is wrong, then you're going to feel that way, and then you're going to act out of that. So Paul is telling us this is how we go forward. Now, to honor your time, um, I'm going to move to what I want to leave you with. And that is um, the first nine verses. And I went through of chapter 4, and I went through all of that because I, I, I want, want you to see the context of what Paul is doing. In prison, know it's going to end, know you got enemies, He's saying, let's go forward, let's go forward. Two things, stay together and not make it about yourself. Be humble like Christ. 
and he gave us a few tips along the way in the journey. Now he comes to this. And chapter 4 has some of the, like I said, most quoted lines in Scripture. I think verse 1 through 9, Paul addresses two of the most common emotions in man, and that's anger and anxiety. And I think these two emotions create what I call tremendous drift in the joy of the Lord. They often shadow or cloud my joy. Think about it. Paul's whole message is about rejoice, have joy in the Lord. But then he addresses the two biggest things that I believe drift our joy when I'm angry or when I'm fearful. When everything is hunky-dory, bring it on. I'm, I'm sitting with you, Jesus. It's all good. But I'm mad at what Lindsay did. I'm not. Trust me. I, I know Lindsay very well. <laughs> I love Lindsay. So, so unfortunately, I use an example right there. I, I'm mad at, or, or I'm, I'm really afraid of what Donna's going to do. I know Donna. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> so, so those two things, I'm, I'm worried about Lindsay being angry and, and Donna, what she's going to do to me. What happens that takes my joy? I'm not present where God is. Remember, the only place that God has for us is right here and now. He says, I'm here. I've shared this story. Sometimes I, I, I call it my Jesus in the lazy boy. Sacrilegious, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully, they won't take my diploma away. But I picture Jesus in one of those really com comfy lazy boys. With a can of, of diet soda sitting there. He's got his feet up, and there's little Stevie running in front of him. I'm running in the back. I'm running. I'm ang oh, I am so angry. I can't believe that happened. Why did that happen? Or I'm run by him. Now I'm in the future going, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm so afraid. And I, little Stevie is just exhausted. And finally, I fall at the feet. And Jesus says, ah, I'm so happy you're here. I've been waiting. I've been watching you run around from the past to the future. Come up on my lap. Come on. Let's talk. That brings me comfort. Jesus in the lazy boy, he's, he's right here. He's right now, and he's watching me. Yeah, well, he'll get tired sooner or later. I'm here. I'm here. And he, he pulls me up, and that makes me really happy. But it's anger and anxiety that causes the drift. So really interesting in verses 1 through 2. <laughs> it's, it's almost kind of an odd sequitur, right? He start, now I appeal. So he's done this massive work, and then he really gets personal. Now I appeal. In the NASB, it's rendered urge. I like that probably better. Now I appeal to Eudora and Synthesis. Okay. Um, because you belong to the Lord. Settle your disagreement. So these first three chapters, he's talking about anger. And, and we can draw a couple. We, we aren't unsure of the relationship. They could be friends. They could be sisters. Who knows what the relationship is? But we know that there's a disagreement, and, he, and it's causing disunity. Remember, the one thing he said you got to have going forward is unity. Now we hear this little story, and it's about disunity. And he urges them to, to think about the same thing. Commentators have said that this must not be a doctrinal issue that, that they're arguing about because Paul has a history of, of stepping into doctrinal issues. He's not afraid. This is wrong. You don't do that. This is what you do. So he doesn't, the issue's never identified. 
because he deals directly with those. He, he doesn't even mention the dispute, suggesting it probably it's not even worth mentioning, like so many arguments, right? So he's speaking. It's kind of like they made that, what's that statement? Uh, I've heard Chuck use it before, making a uh, pit out of a pothole. You know, something was going on, we don't know. But can you imagine? He's calling them out by name in a letter. It'd be like, Chuck, okay, Steve, I, I want to talk to you this morning. And there's 3,000 people sitting in the sanctuary. I'm going, oh, okay. <laughs> what are you doing? Paul's doing that for a reason. It's not doctrinal. He doesn't even get personal of the issue. But it must be something that the whole church knows, maybe needs to know. But it's the point about how it's affecting the whole church. Because he's taking time to write in the letter to the church. So it's the thing that's going on that's causing disunity. And Paul's not messing around with that. And everyone else is kind of, oh, 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 okay. And, and, and these arguments are where bitterness land, right? Anger takes hold from these, these elements of arguing and being um, uh, dis, uh, not uh, together. And so Paul isn't chastising. He's urging. He's appealing. And, and he says, okay, come on, guys. Come on. H help them out. Clement, I don't know who Clement is, <laughs> but, he, but he's, he's drawing them to say, this is a matter. And I think what, what we conclude about that, because it ends with this beautiful statement. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. What he's saying is, come on, guys. We love Jesus. There are people out there that don't love us. What are we doing to each other? What are we arguing for? Why are we causing dissension? Why is there disunity? Because, reference back, it's about unity that's going to keep you together because there are enemies that are trying to kill you. So he's speaking to them, dropping wisdom all over the place, making it very personal. You can't abstractly kind of tune out. He's looking at him. And he's saying, effectively, stop it. I urge you, because you don't realize how important it is to stay together. And boy, does that message still preach today, doesn't it? Does that not still preach today? We're Christians. We're believers. We're in the book of life. We're on the same team. Pick a metaphor you want to use. He's saying, come on, people. It's tough out there. Stick together. Be together. Be unified. And then he gets to some of the most brilliant verses. And that is about anxiety and worry. Um, there, is, there is so much richness and depth I deal with anxiety. I, um, some of you know, I, I, I'm not comfortable in front of people. I, I've had some really bad experiences in the past, and I, I, I've, I've, um, I haven't done well. And, and I gotta 
out of my mind. And, and, and so what anxiety is, anxiety is like emotional, psychological, and physical sonar. Anxiety goes out and scans the horizon. Where is something that can hurt me? God gave it to us because he loves us so much. It's a survival skill. You've heard me say this before, depending upon which study you read. We have eight to ten times more neural receptors to discern fear than we do joy. And God gave us a higher acuity to figure out what's going to hurt us. He says, I love you. But if you really want to love, you've got to subordinate all your fears to be able to thrive. Follow me. You can survive. I love you. So we come by anxiety. So it's this radar that goes up, and it, and it triangulates. So I've got a past experience. Steve, you've said some stupid things in front of people. <laughs> Quit laughing so easy, Joseph. <laughs> you said some stupid stuff. And then I see people I know and love. Donna, Carol, I walk through. I just go around the room, and I see I say, Taylor, I don't want to mess up. So I start connecting this point. I'm afraid, and, and this past experience connects to, gosh, i got to stand in front of people I love and respect, connects to that, and next thing you know, I'm nervous. And I'm worried. And if I live out there, I'm constantly in this state of fear. And here's the thing. Anger destroys unity. Anxiety hyper-focuses on self. Now we're back to the other thing, humble. That's why he spent so much time talking about anxiety in here. Because when we're anxious, I'm hyper-focused on me. I'm not worried how, Lord, will you do, how will you lead, how will you feed your word to these precious souls. I'm focused on, I don't want to mess up. And Paul knows that. The two things that will allow you to go forward, to retain joy in your service, is remember you're together. And remember it's about others. Humility, humble. But when I'm anxious, I'm focused on me because I'm outside of protection. I don't take a risk. I don't care much about others. I will turn down reasons to speak. I've done that. No, I, I don't want to speak. And then, I think it was Brian, you're the knucklehead who got me into here. <laughs> He's asked me to talk, but the, the, the point is, I say that affectionately, please. <laughs> but, but that, see what that does? Paul's telling these beautiful souls, a small band in a culture that doesn't love them, doesn't know them, in fact, makes fun of them, tries to push them to others. Guys, learn from me. And learn from our Lord. By my example, stay together. Be humble. Anger creates disunity. Humility gives us the chance to focus on the love of Christ to each and every one. And this world needs more of that. That's why I loved what Jim was saying. How your class ministers to each other. Good night. It's because you aren't. Or when you are, you've got someone coming along, folks, and saying, I'm going to get you through this. Gene Spencer spent 
a ton of time with Gail and Dean. Every single one of you do that. That's how this little movement called Christianity continues to move forward in the midst of enemies, in the midst of people. And so then the last part. So that's what anxiety is. Then Paul doesn't leave us there. In verses 4 through 7, he tells us, okay, how, how to calm down, how to calm down, how to deal with this anxiety. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. I'll say that again. Everything means everything. Now, there's an interesting truth. Um, praying and calling upon the Lord is always, always, always right. But praying does one other thing. Remember, anxiety, especially, anxiety, this mind God gave us is the fastest computer ever. And we can connect dots and we can create fear and worry about random points in space. This might happen. Remember, it's a sonar. It goes out, boom, boom, connects it. One of the keys to dealing with anxiety is to create a nanosecond of peace. Before you do anything, before I, I, I was, while Jim was praying, I was praying. Calm. What it does, it stops because you think Go think of that. Think on these things that are good and right. It's putting your mind on God. So it's stopping the hyperconnectivity neurobiologically that's creating the anxiety. And it becomes a self-generating cycle. If you've ever had or witnessed someone with a panic attack, it is hard. It is scary. You've got them first, just breathe. Just calm down. Because you're trying to stop this loop that's trying to protect you and connect all these dots. So Paul wisely says, pray. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he's done. Don't leave worry in your head. The monster always grows bigger in the dark. Say it. If you don't have anyone there, talk to God. That's not just, again, some Mardell's gift cup statement. <laughs> Paul is saying that. <laughs> talk to him. Tell him. That's how you stop anxiety. Begin to slow it down. And the outcome, the outcome, to move to that. At the end of um, that section, verse 9, then the peace of God will be with you. And I want to read something that um, I find important. The word peace in the Hebrew Bible is shalom. Let me read what um, a, a theologian wrote about the concept of shalom. Shalom is often translated in our English Bibles as the word peace, but it means much more than our common conceptions of that word convey. Shalom is more than the absence of hostility or an inner sense of personal well-being. The nuance contained in this single Hebrew word require a whole bunch of English words, he uses cluster, a whole bunch of English terms to adequately represent it. That simple word peace that we translate in the Hebrew meant wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight, fulfillment. Shalom is the dream of God for a world set right. 
No wonder Paul says that the peace of God surpasses all comprehension and is able to guard our hearts and mind in Christ. See, the peace that he is referring to in this text is not a mere absence of anxiety. It is the positive presence of God's spirit in comfort and joy. So Paul is saying, I, I want much more for you when you go out there. I want you to know you have the shalom of God. And when there's enemies and when they are attacking you and when they are criticizing you, that's the joy that you have by knowing Jesus Christ. You have the shalom, the peace that is not the mere absence of anxiety, but allows us to step into circumstances like Paul. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. To have that kind of peace, man, give me some of that. That's been upstream this whole time, right? That's the word of Jesus. That's the bridge. That's been upstream. All Again, good work downstream. Teaching, talking, reading, preparing. But it's upstream. The two biggest problems I face that I hear when people I talk is some form of anxiety and some form of anger. And Paul says, I get it. Stay unified. Stay humble. And the shalom of Christ. No matter what's going on in the culture, no matter what's going on, you'll be well pleased in the kingdom of heaven. Because remember, that's where you live, not here. That's good stuff. Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing. Lord, I pray the one thing is to honor you. I simply want to join your work already in progress. Lord, I don't, I don't want to get too far in front where I'm out here on my own thinking I'm wise. Never let that be. Nor do I want to be too far behind you and not hear what you have for me. Lord, let me stay close. Lord, let my ears be your ears and my eyes be your eyes. And most importantly, Lord, let my heart beat in time with your heart. Lord, this is precious, sacred time to share it with my brothers and my sisters. It's a joy of a lifetime. Thank you for the diligent leadership. Thank you for Wayne and his teaching. Thank you for everyone in here that is loving each other. May we stay together unified. May we stay humble so that we may have the shalom that doesn't make any sense to anyone else but to us who are in your book of life. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. You bet. Some of you know uh, my wife and I teach that little class over there, special needs parents class. We've been doing that for about six years, so I'm going to go over and pop my head and make sure they're not goofing around in there since I'm not here. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Steve. I wouldn't worry about the anxiety part. <laughs> Till next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.